morning, church. Um, luckily, you've already got your Bibles turned to Exodus chapter 19. That's where we're going to start our day and then move into Exodus chapter 20. So I was recently reminded um, of how much I really like the game of chess. So I, I, I teach a, a middle school group here at Grace called The Bridge, and one of my students, Ethan King, has recently started playing the game, and he came over to my house a couple of weeks ago. We were having life group, and he asked if we could play. And, I mean, not even one game in, the memories are coming back, right? Just loving the game, and particularly memories of my grandpa, my grandpa Richie. Um, grandpa was a lot of things to a lot of people, but to me, he was mostly a chess player and a carpenter. Um, he was also a very serious man, and in fact, he had built the chessboard over 20 years ago that Ethan and I were playing on. And so, like I said, the memories were just coming back. Um, but I could remember one specific time playing a game of chess with Grandpa Richie um, that wasn't very serious. In fact, it was hardly a game of chess at all. It was super silly. He was visiting our family in New Mexico, and there was this little girl that came to our church, and she was just infatuated with this game that we were playing. And she wanted to play, and she would just pick up random pieces and move them to random places. Didn't matter if they were white, black, rooks, pawns, queens. Didn't matter. They were going where she wanted them. And she would just crack up every time she moved a piece. And of course... Grandpa Richie is great about it, right? And of course, 12-year-old Greg is not great about it, right? Like, what are you doing? There's no more competition. There's no more strategy. There's no more game. There's no more game because there were no more rules. There were no more boundaries. There was no more, nothing to keep us inside the ditches, right? There's just pieces flying around the board, just chaos. So if you've been here most of the summer, you'll, you'll remember that we're going through the book of Exodus, and we're going through it really fast, right? And what that has allowed us to do is to really focus in on some of the big pictures, some of the big themes um, of who God is and how he deals with his people and how he reveals himself to us, right? Way at the beginning of the book, we heard about him hearing the groans and the cries of his people, right? Then we saw him um, at the mountain with the burning bush, and God begins to reveal himself to Moses. He gives us his covenant name, right? We, get, we saw God's power. We saw the plagues. We saw him strike down the Egyptians. We saw the way that he loves his people. We saw the way that he plans to, to save them in the Passover. And then two weeks ago, we started to focus a little bit more on how God's people were going to respond to, or to God, how people were going to act, how people were going to respond to their salvation, respond to their deliverance. And we saw some highs and some lows, right? What did they write? They wrote this song, this beautiful song that they sung to each other and to the Lord over and over and over for thousands of years. Songs praising God's power, praising God's goodness and his mercy for them, for their people. We also saw them doubt. We saw them complain. We saw them grumble. And it's that mixture, that tension, that has brought us to where we are today, right? Who has brought the Israelites and Moses to Mount Sinai. 
That's where we find them in chapter 19. The same place that God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, God has brought his people back to this mountain that represents his presence. And he's done it to teach them, to teach them, to show them, to instruct them on what living in this new world, in this newer covenant, is going to look like. Listen how he starts. 19 of verse 3. Moses went up to the mountain of God, and the Lord called him from the mountain. We just read this. And he, and he talks to him about, right? I, remember who you are. You're the house of Jacob, right? Remember what I did for you. I carried you out of Egypt. Remember to listen Remember, listen to my covenant. This is what you can be. Moses, this is what y'all can have. I brought you here because I'm Yahweh. I brought you here because I remember the covenant that I made with your fathers. I brought you here because I'm not done with you. I didn't bring you out of Egypt so that you could wander around aimlessly. I brought you out because I want to make you holy like I'm holy. I brought you out to be my ambassadors, my priests to the nations. I brought you out so that my name might be made famous. He continues in verse 7. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all of the words that the Lord had commanded. Then all the people responded together, We will do all that the Lord has spoken. And so Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come down to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord and the Lord told Moses, go back to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes And be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or even touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. Those of you who know me at least a a little bit... um, will know that probably my favorite Bible teacher of all time um, is Dr. R.C. Sproul. And one of the things that I loved most about his teaching is the way that he could just make the Scripture come to life when he read it. Right? He talked often about the drama of Scripture. He talked often about the almost theatrical nature of what's going on and how we can miss that when we're just looking at statements and details. And so we would read with such conviction, and I wish we could just pipe him in right now to read this next part, but we can't, so it's on you to really think, really try to put yourself where the Israelites are. Try to think about what it actually would have looked like, what it actually would have felt like. Because it's important to what God is trying to do and what God is trying to teach them. Read with me in verse 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from a ram's horn so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God at the foot of the mountain. 
Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since he warned us Put up a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord replied to him, Go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Right, we read this passage, this epic story of God descending on this mountain and you cannot help but feel you cannot help but imagine the power and might the just frightening nature of what must have been going on and frankly when you sit in that you can't help but feel some of the guilt that they must have felt this is the God that they've just been doubting this is the God that they've just said why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? And now, they're standing in the shadow of his presence, feeling the mountain shake. And it's easy to look at that situation and take it straight to 10,000 feet. It's easy to look at that situation and think about all of this that God is asking them to do, all of, the, God, all of this that God is saying, hey, you need to clean your clothes, you need to consecrate yourselves, you need to eliminate all distractions from your life for two whole days before you come to me, and just think about that in kind of an ethereal way, like, oh man, sin is bad, it can't be near God, um, they need to see that Sin is a big deal. They need, to, they need to work on that in their lives. You know, they're struggling with that stuff, and this will work. But I think there's something beautiful here about the simplicity of what's actually going on. All those things are true, but, but there's a much more practical sense in which God is trying to have an intimate moment with his people. God wants his people to come close to him. But without this, they just won't make it. They'll die. Like, they just cannot be in his presence without these things, right? When you start looking in Leviticus where all of this is going to get way more complicated and way more specific, there is something beautiful about the fact that God is gifting them these rituals so that they can come close God wants them to come to the mountain, but he knows they cannot come without a certain amount of awe and respect and fear. Right? Not a fear that drives them away, a fear that calls them to obedience, a fear that calls them to closeness. Now it is Father's Day, and I am a father. I have four kiddos. Um, 
And one thing I have really loved about being a dad is sharing stories with my kids. I love stories. Stories that we all know. Stories that connect us, right? And I used to kind of think that stories were just fun, maybe just entertainment, but as I have tried to teach my kiddos things, I have really felt the power of stories. And I think this is a great example, not because how many people in this room have wondered or struggled with the idea of being afraid of God? All right, we got people with hands up and we got liars. Right? Every, it's just a weird thing. It's just not easy to think about fearing the Lord. And I know that someday Lydia is going to come up to me and she's going to say, Daddy, why am I supposed to be afraid of God? He loves me. Why am I supposed to be afraid of God? And I love stories because I'm going to be able to tell her, a fear of the Lord is to be like Simba, walking back from the elephant graveyard. Right? You just saw what your dad can do. You just saw the wrath of your father, the king of everything the light touches. And you disobeyed him. I'm going to tell her that fear is like Bilbo accusing Gandalf of trying to take the ring. You want the ring for yourself. Darkness fills the room. He's struck with terror. But when Bilbo runs to Gandalf, he's embraced and he's comforted. Simba's fear doesn't make him run away from his dad. It makes him wrestle with his dad. That's why God comes in fire and in lightning. That's why God makes them prepare for two days. That's why God doesn't let everyone come all the way up the mountain with Moses. It's so that their ears will be open. It's so that their hearts can receive him. And now they're ready. So Moses and Aaron go up the mountain, and they listen to God, and hear what he says. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Like, here it is, guys. Moses and Aaron, they're walking up there. This is the moment. This is what we've been waiting for. Remember, all the way back, God said, hey, we got to go tell Pharaoh we got to leave so we can what? We got to leave so that we can worship God in the wilderness. We're here. We're in the wilderness. He's finally going to show us how to worship him. This is it. And God says, hold on. Wait. Just in case you forgot, just in case you decide to be doubting again, I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you these commandments. I'm going to teach you how to love me and how to worship me. But first, remember that I already saved you. Remember that you've already been delivered. You know, the Jewish tradition was going to get a lot of things wrong between right now and when Jesus came. One of the things they at least got right in word, not necessarily in deed, but in word, is that they, they started calling God something new after this. Right? It's really common they would call him God or the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And after this, they call him the God who delivered us out of the land of Egypt. They understand, or at least in word understood, that their identity is in their deliverance. 
not in keeping of the law. The law comes second. The law comes after. And I want to, we're going to look at all these, we're, we're, we're going to look at them really fast. But we have to remember that they're a response. We have to remember that the law comes second. Let's read in verse 3. Do not have other gods besides me. Y'all got that one? All right, good. We can go home. So do not make an idol for yourself, whether in shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Thousands of generations. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work... You, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. These first four commandments are historically grouped together as the first table of the law because they're vertically focused, right? These tell us about how we're going to interact with God, how we're going to interact with Yahweh. And, the, and, and beyond that, beyond just this grouping, right, they're in a pretty specific order. The first two commandments, right, have no other gods and don't make idols. Those deal specifically with our with our thoughts, specifically with our worship, with our perspective, with our motivation, right? God says, I have to be first. I'm God. I'm Yahweh. You cannot afford any distraction from me. I have to be supreme in your lives. He directs our thoughts. He directs our words. Don't misuse the name of the Lord, which I hope we can all agree means more than say, oh my gosh, not oh my God. Right? It's about being flippant with something as holy and important and weighty as the Lord's name. It's about not manipulating others using the Lord's name. I swear to God I'm going to clean my room. God is my witness. I didn't eat the bluebell. Hardly something someone with a respect and fear of the Lord would say, right? We have thoughts, we have words, and we have deeds. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If you want to understand this commandment, just go on the podcast app, whatever you use, and listen to the sermon from two weeks ago. The Lord is teaching his people that they need real, tangible, repeatable, physical reminders... That they cannot do it without God. They cannot do it without Him. They need His rest. They need His provision. They need Him. 
And now we move to the, to the second table, one that's more horizontal in nature. It's going to teach us about how we interact with each other, starting in verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet, covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All right. Let's see who is listening. We had thoughts, words, <laughs> deeds. Very good. And now we're going to do it backwards, right? We have thoughts, words, deeds, and now we're going to go deeds, words, thoughts. Honor your father and mother, deeds. Do not murder, deeds. Do not commit adultery, deeds. Do not steal, deeds. God is getting really practical with his people. This is stuff we teach our kids on the playground, right? You want things to go right for you in your life? You want things to be smooth? Listen to your mom and dad. You want other people to be on your side? You want other people on your team? You want other people to care about you? Don't murder anybody. Take a page out of Jesus' book. Don't let anger drive your decision-making. Don't let anger be the motivating principle of your life. It will not work out well. Do you want to have a family? Do you want to have someone who loves you and that you love? Do you want to be able to raise children in a comforting, wonderful, God-glorifying home? Don't go sleeping around. Don't let lust drive your life, because it will. There is one place and one place only that God blesses sex and is within the marriage of one man and one, mo one woman. If you don't get that right, good luck. You want to have trusting relationships? You want to be success successful in the business world? You want to stay out of a jail cell? Don't steal things. No one likes a thief. You don't even have to teach this one to your kids. How many of you have a kid who steals something and then just stands there? They steal it and they run. They know they're not supposed to take other people's stuff. They know. We know. It's wrong. But God is teaching these, them these things. He's giving them these commandments, not just at a personal level. He's giving it to them at a societal level, right? God is saying, do these things not just for your life, but because you need these things for the culture to work. You need these things if you're going to live together. Just this morning, I was talking to Jared, and he said, if you want to be near people, you have to have rules. And he's totally right. We have to have that. So right, we had deeds, and now we have words. Don't be lying to people. It doesn't help. They always find out. And if they don't, you know, and it's just as bad as if they found out. It's just not worth it. It's not right. And again, it doesn't allow for a productive, collaborative, loving culture. Anyone who's ever worked on a team, whether that be at work, whether that be projects at school, knows that when you can't trust the people around you, when there are liars in a group, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. 
if things are going to be successful for the Israelites, if, if the Hebrews are truly going to be God's people amongst the nation, if they are going to be salt and light to the world, if they are going to be priests to the nation, if they are going to make God's name known, they need to be able to trust each other and collaborate and work together. They need to get these things right. And then God ends basically where he started with our thoughts, with our motivations. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. When you covet, what, it, what does that really mean? It means you're thinking and believing that God's provision in your life is not enough. It means you're thinking that your priorities are more important than God's priorities. When you covet that house, that job, you're making a new God. You know, one of those ones you're not supposed to have. It's not just talking about Baal. It's not just talking about Buddha or Allah or anything else. It's talking about anything that we can put ahead of God. And by the way, that's like anything. God bookends with directing our thoughts because he knows if we're not getting that right, we have no chance to do the stuff in the middle. We have no chance to do it. Not to mention the fact that, right, we got a bunch of engineers in here. What do we like to do? We like to make a list. We like to check the boxes, right? I love to check boxes. But that's not right for my heart, right? That's not right for what's going on in here. That's just falling into legalism. That's just faking an outward appearance. We can't fake our hearts. We can't fake our minds. And that's what God is truly concerned about. How much clearer is this for us under the new covenant, right? Jesus is teaching about these things, and he goes straight to the ones in the middle. Listen, you've heard what was said to your ancestors. Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to punishment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to punishment. It's about your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's about your heart. He teaches very clearly that these commandments are also, like, right, again, with our lists and our just like... Whoosh. Sure, they have, they have value individually. But they are calling us to a singular thing. They are calling us all in one direction. Right? Towards the end of his ministry, he's teaching us that these bookends of your thoughts and your worship and your motivations, the things that drive your life, pointing those things towards God, he puts those at the end, not just to have some fancy structure. It's because he wants you to remember that. It's because he wants you to know that those are the most important, right? In Matthew 22, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. They wanted their shot. And one of them asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which command is the greatest? He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. They had like 
613 laws at this point, right? And they knew that those 16 were an extension of the 10. 613 were an extension of the 10. And now Jesus is saying those 10 are an extension of two. You don't want to steal from people? Love people. You don't want to hate people, be angry at people? Love people. You don't want to covet whatever they have? Love people. You want to love people? Love God. Right? It's 613 into 2, or into 10, into 2, into 1. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Like I said, we had to like blast through all of those. And I, I didn't do any of them justice. And I didn't do all the extra stuff at the beginning or the injustice. But, but I want us to have time to see a little bit of a different aspect on these. I want us to have time to look at really the, the beauty and the gift that these commandments are. Um, as I've studied them, as I've listened about them, as I've read them over and over, I think there is a beauty in that God's law and his words are gifts to us. And they're gifts because you can't play chess without a chessboard. You can't play chess. The rook always doesn't move like a rook. You can't play chess if you go white and then black and then white and then black. Without rules, without structure, without boundaries, you don't have a game. Think about what the Israelites have just come out of and what they're about to go into. Right? They were just in slavery in Egypt. They had some boundaries. They had a tiny little box. And they got delivered from that. They got set free from that. And that was a really, really good, important, wonderful thing. But they're about to say no to God's boundaries. And that's going to put them in the wilderness. Because freedom without some structure, freedom without some limits and guardrails is chaos. It is the wilderness. It is aimless wandering. And that is not what God wants for us. God wants something better for us. If we're going to operate the way that God wants us to operate, if we're going to operate in a way that glorifies Him, that displays His love to the people around us, then we need these structures. We need these structures. I love in the, the first question of the Westminster Catechism, it, it asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and love Him forever, or enjoy Him forever. We can't enjoy Him without these rules. They're a gift. He's giving to them. He gave them to the Israelites and he's giving them to us so that we can enjoy him, so that we can love him. Please don't, please don't view these as restrictive. They are freeing. They are enabling. They are allowing us to pursue God. In a few moments, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. The band is going gonna, is gonna to come up here and I'm going to try to climb behind the drum set without breaking something. 
And after we sing another song, we're going to take communion together. We're going to take communion together and we're going to celebrate that God saved us first. We're going to celebrate that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us after following this law perfectly that we could never follow perfectly. And that he shed his blood anyway because he loved us. And then he was raised three days later, right? That he conquered sin and death. And that's what saves us. That's what we're celebrating. And I, and I would say if, if you believe that this morning, if you have um, confessed Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I would invite you to take with us, whether you are a member of this church or not. It, if you haven't done that, I would just say, please don't. It, it, without all those things, it's just a juice. It's just some juice in a cracker. But if you want that, if you feel the weight of this law, if you feel the weight of, man, I've been just running and running and running, and I cannot get there by myself, I would love to talk to you after. Um, one of our elders, Greg Monokine, is going to be in the back corner on my right hand side he would love to pray with you he'll have a communion cup he would love to talk to you more about what this means and what christ did and how freeing that can truly be let's pray dear heavenly father we thank you for this day we thank you for the opportunity to come into your into your church and the opportunity to sing these songs the opportunity to hear your word read aloud to praise and worship with our brothers and sisters. I ask that as we go through life this week, um, that we would do so in light of who you are, that we would do so knowing that your salvation comes first, um, but also just in thanksgiving of the, of the gifts that you've given us since then, of the gift of your law, the gift of these commandments that teach us how to love you and praise you and know you. We do love you, Lord, and we praise you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.